Welcome to Joy Field and Jesus Led. I'm your host, Tony Daniels, sharing real life stories and practical tools that not only let you know you're not alone, but also help you become the emotional, spiritual ninja warrior you were created to be. We're in a series on resourcing the relational revolution where you're hearing from different people and organizations that have been fueling the value shifts that are helping people rediscover church as healthy heart-to-heart connection. Today, I have the joy of interviewing my good friend, colleague, and fellow author of Relational Revolution and Joy Fuel, Dr. Kent Smith, a professor of 30 plus years at Abilene Christian University and co-founder of Luke 10 and the Eden Center for Regenerative Community. Dr. Smith has lived a lifetime experimenting with learning communities, and he is a master architect of creating communities that can love and lead well together with each other and with God. The inability to healthily make decisions together has brought about more division and corruption of power in the church and the world for that matter than almost any other issue. Dr. Smith shares with us his journey into what he's coined divine governance and how it creates way for the kingdom of God to break forth as a result of every voice reflecting the image of God. This was so good, I could not divide it into two podcasts. So you get the full thing. I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, for those of you who are watching possibly this on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or our lk10.com slash live site, um, we are in the middle of doing Relational Revolution Live, which is where we are modeling and inviting. We are modeling the value shifts for practicing church as heart-to-heart connection, and we're inviting others to join us by training and by funding this movement. So today, right now, I am in a call with Dr. Kent Smith. Welcome, Kent. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here. And we are going to have an incredible conversation today for a podcast as well that I host called Joy Field and Jesus Led. Um, And I'm in a series right now in that podcast talking about Um, the unique contributions to the relational revolution. So we've been doing this for months now and I've saved the best for last. (laughs) So um, Kat, sometimes I refer to you as our um, our secret weapon. (laughs) Not many people know you personally. You kind of hide behind the scenes and you're kind of quiet because it's hard to get a word in with John and I around. Um, (laughs) So... I am thrilled today to give you time and space to unpack some of the things that you bring to us that people really don't even know are there. Even the things that are unique about your contribution to the revolution are almost unseen unless you deconstruct a little bit to see them. Kind of like when you walk into a building, you're not thinking about the pipes or the plumbing or the way that building was built. You just see the pretty building, right? But you get kind of inside the construction of things and and build it in ways that people have no clue you are the uh, architectural genius behind them. So all that uh, as a preview for our time together today. So on the podcast, what I normally do, we model our rhythms for people. So we just check in together. And then we listen a little bit. I don't have an agenda for the conversation. Uh, we listen to Jesus and ask him to bring the agenda. And then I follow the threads with radical observation, basically, and curiosity. Does that sound uh, good for you today? Sounds wonderful. All right, great. So we'll take 30 seconds to take a deep breath and check in with ourselves. Um, and then and then we'll just check in with each other. Uh, we do this so often. So it's natural for you and I to do this. Um, So I'll take a minute to breathe. I've been going all morning. All right. You want to go first? Sure. Well, I'll just, I'll just go with one that's very fresh on my mind. I just left a meeting with uh, two of our dear friends in the, in the local community. I'm a part of the Eden community here. And uh, we were, we were doing similar kinds of things, listening to the Lord together, but also planning for our big foundations workshop that starts here in a couple of days here in Abilene. And uh, so it's just such a joy to work with people who 
um, share a common sense of call with the Lord and who are um, awake to what God's up to in their lives at this moment and uh, to be planning for uh, the chance to share with people from a lot of places um, some of the things God's been giving to us as well as anticipating lots of learning that we'll do uh, from the people that are coming from um, all parts of the U.S. So um, just came out of that meeting feeling, you know, really energized and hopeful. I'm I'm a teacher by at heart and uh, uh, a builder at heart. And so the chance to create something new with dear friends and collaboration is uh, gives me lots of joy and uh, uh, kicks off a lot of the the sparks of energy in my soul. So I'm coming to you happy and excited today. Thank you. Uh, you you dropped a lot in that check-in that we will unpack, I'm sure, in our conversation, just for people tuning in, Eden Center, Regenerative Workshop, <laughs> like, lots of things. They have no clue what these are, but hopefully by the end of our call, they will have an idea of what these things are. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I am checking in as excited, thankful, relieved, and super satisfied. So I'm excited to be live with you to have this interview. Finally, we've talked about doing this for months and I've been like pushing it off and waiting. And so I'm like, it's here. So I'm super excited about that. Um, my daughter just finished her eighth grade graduation. I'm taking her out today to celebrate. We'll have a big party for her. So super excited for that milestone in her life. Um, had a really beautiful call with our facilitators just now. So deeply satisfied. Um, I mean, there it, it it really is a privilege like none other to to walk with the people that God gathers um, around us to be able to learn from. So really satisfied with that. I think I'm in. All right. Why don't we listen? Um, all right. So Ken, do you think two minutes is good? Yeah, sounds great. All right. And we're just going to be listening about Jesus. What do you want us to talk about today? What's the most important thing for us to cover in our time together? And Kent, what I've been asking other people in this series is, you know, what is your unique contribution? If you had to, I mean, I'm going to tell you what I think your contribution is, but I want you to think, you know, God, what is my unique contribution? And share some of that. And then I've been asking people as well, what have they, what have they not had a chance to share yet? that maybe is just burning in their heart that they want to say. So that might be something too, that you might want to listen on. Okay. Sounds great. All right. I'll be back in two. See you then. Wait, whenever you're ready. Beautiful. Well, I'll, I'll share first. Um, I heard one, I, because I'm so familiar with you, I didn't really introduce you yet. I, on the podcast, I'll do a little intro for that, but I didn't introduce you today. And I was like, wow, I didn't introduce him yet. So I wanted to do a little bit of that. Um, and then, you know, my, um, my biggest curiosity is divine governance and sociocracy. And I, I want, I want the history on that with you. Um, so that's where my heart is, but anything that you heard um, while you were listening? Uh, sure. Well, um, we can <clears throat> we can unpack this as we go. Um, but okay. um, I think you know one thing that is that is very central for me is just um, us us all um, rediscovering, reclaiming the core idea, the core truth that God is love and that the invitation of God all along has been an invitation to love as a lifestyle. Um, I'm kind of a systems thinking kind of a guy. And so I, I have to work that out in the nuts and bolts of what does it look like to live love as a lifestyle? And my conclusion after lots of years of working on this is it, it involves every dimension of our life, every single thing that we do every relationship that we have is uh, meant to be profoundly shaped by the truth that God is love. And so um, <clears throat> if we take it out to the 80,000 foot level, that's probably one of the things that's a passion of mine that has made its way into Luke 10 over the years. All right, we will unpack that then. <laughs> Let me introduce you for those who don't know who you are. It's going to be 
uh, you know, a very uh, probably uh, short introduction, um, but you are a professor at Abilene Christian University. And and is it true that you've been doing that for 30 years, Kent? <laughs> Just... Started in 91. So I guess we're at 32 now. That's incredible. Um, in the same place, in the same city for someone like me who's <laughs> lived all over and moved around quite a bit. Um, that's an incredible track record. You're an author, of course, uh, with John and I and of books of your own and articles of your own and co-founder of Luke 10 um, and co-founder, founder or co-founder of the Eden Center for Regenerative Culture? Yeah. Co-founder. Okay. Co-founder of the Eden Center for Regenerative Culture. And I'm going to let you unpack for us a little bit we know what Luke 10 is, kind of. Uh, John was on the podcast earlier, and people who are showing up live today uh, hopefully have a little idea of who Luke 10 is. Um, but this idea, this this Eden Center for Regenerative Culture is probably new to most of our listeners. So give us a brief on what that is. Sure. Well, um, to tell a long story as short as I can, <clears throat> about 10 years into our work at ACU, uh, Karen and I had a chance to spend a year in England. We were looking uh, at life and the post-Christendom world in Europe at that time. Uh, this is 2002. And um, coming away from that time, we felt like we needed to really raise the bar on the level of um, training that we were offering our grad students in seminaries uh, to live this life. So back to love as a lifestyle. Lots of good book learning, lots of good uh, things happening at sort of the academic level in our seminary. But the dean and I agreed that we needed mm. a uh, much more practical, hands-on, life-on-life experience of building community with one another, um, coming to pay better attention to the world around us and how we can join God and what God's doing there. So we launched what's called the what was called the Missionary Residency for North America. Ran that for ten years or so and. And um, uh, 70 plus graduate students went through that process. And uh, at the end of it, <clears throat> Karen and I, my wife and I looked at each other and said, this has been wonderful. Uh, it's been powerful. But there's there's three big things that we're realizing um, are not being well addressed by what we've done so far. Um, <clears throat> the first was we realized that our students were coming to us more and more broken. Hmm. And uh you know, if you're trying to build community, deep, intimate, powerful, God-attending community with people who are profoundly broken, you got challenges because trust is a huge issue. And we were trying to do this in 18 months to two years. And a lot of times people were just getting by the end of that time to where they were willing to lean into community at deeper levels. So um, that brokenness was an issue that we realized we were going to have to address a lot of our students didn't have any imagination for what it would be like to live in an intergenerational community uh, where uh, people are living interdependently with people of other ages than their own. Most of our students had been with people of peer age from preschool on through graduate school, mid-20s, late-20s, early-30s, and their whole imagination for life going forward is hanging out with people my age, you know, whether they move to Chicago or Singapore. And we realized that's that's not a sustainable model uh, that wow. is, you know, people land land on the ground in one of those cities and they're buried and trying to just survive in life. And if their only way of building communities with people their own age, their only only imagination is for that, that's uh, that's going to be super problematic over time. And the third thing was we just realized that they. Um, they didn't really have any deep experience or imagination for living a, a, um, a covenant life together, living in a, in a, a committed relationship with other people. Um, a job came along, a uh, desire for better weather, all kinds of things would motivate people to pack up and leave the community they've been forming. And uh, in America, that's uh -huh. kind of the normal modus operandi, but it's not very good for building. Right, right. And covenant life together used to be called family, I think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Extended 150 family, years ago. Right? Yeah. It was, it was built in. With. Yeah. And, and then it just disintegrated. And with it, so did the concept of having a people that you travel through life with. Yes. Uh, for, yeah. for the long haul. 
beautiful. When you say, um, I just want to break break down. When you say, you know, raise the bar on training so people can learn to love. Like you were noticing, you know, you're training people in seminary and college and seminary, and you're you're recognizing they're getting Bible and they're getting all kinds of intellectual knowledge, but they're not they're not learning to love. And um, you know, as I would phrase that for myself, I would say, you mean they're not able to have a healthy relationship? Is that what you're saying? They don't know how to bond with people healthily. They don't know how to have conflict with people healthily. Maybe they don't even know how to appreciate their own contribution. So just trying to break that learning to love out for people. Um, How else would you describe that? I think that's that's perfect. And your point about extended family being gone, Mm -hmm. I think we can trace a lot of the the ills that I've been describing back to the fact that people are not growing up in extended families like they have for most of human history in most of the world, right? Um, places where aunts and uncles, grandparents, children, babies, nephews and nieces are all around us. And we're growing up moving through life in a cohort of folks who know us well, who love us mm-hmm. imperfectly, no doubt, much of the time, but still there's a, a place where we're known and uh, we're about 100 years away from that experience in, in the Western world, especially in North America. And uh, so most people don't even have a memory of family like that, of that kind of mm. place where you're seen, known, celebrated, drawn out. Yeah. Um, again, it's never been perfect, but it's always been normative that that sort of structure was a part of human life, whether it was the first century ecosystems of the Oikos households, whether it was Colonia and in the cities of Latin America, whether it was tribal groups in North America or Africa. I mean, every part of the world, people have normally lived in a walkable context where they were seen and heard and known most of their life. And we're a hundred years into an experiment where that's not true. Our students are definitely uh, demonstrating the, the outcome of that loss of core community. So we've been using the language of attachment a lot in Luke 10. But if you don't know how to attach to another person, you don't know how to be deeply attached to yourself, um, you've missed the training ground for being deeply attached to God because that's precisely where God intended us to learn, to be loved and to know how to love. So you're noticing this, that your students are lacking this sticky kind of love, basically, that's essential for kingdom living. Yes. And yet you're, you're, you're supposed to be training them and how to live this way, but you're realizing there's a disconnect here because we're giving them all this intellectual knowledge, but that's not helping them actually develop the skills necessary to love well. So what happens? So, yeah, this is a long way to get around to answering your first question, which is um, about 12 years into running this graduate program, we realized, you know, some of the core things that are still not being addressed, as good as it's been, what we've done so far, um, really can only be uh, dealt with by providing a demonstration community. People need a chance to see this working. They need a chance to see intergenerational, interdependent Uh, communities of God's love in practice uh, in order to catch the vision for it and begin to decide I could live differently than I've been handed uh, as the options as a normal person in North America. So you're saying that that they would have to see it modeled before they could even imagine how that could look in their own lives and their own cities and their own families. Yeah and again it's it's a it's a really strange um, product of our time that we have to design this you know um, it was normal for most of human history and most of the world but it's not now and we have to be very very intentional about it if we're going to have it yeah so that that is the genesis of the Eden community um, Karen and I issued an, an invitation to some close friends uh, two couples joined us to start with Um, And we began, and then we've had several other couples join us. And our purpose here is really just to be an incubator community, to to create a community that intergenerational. We've got folks that are uh, close to 70 and folks that are um, seven months old and lots of ages in between. And and this is a context where students can come alongside. They can join us in the parts of our life that make sense for them to join us. They can see it. They can ask questions, they can push back, 
Mm-hmm. And um, so that is mm-hmm. the, the genesis of, uh, of the Eden community. We think of ourselves as uh, a specially called group. Every group is specially called. Our calling is to, um, is to be a demonstration site for mm-hmm. what this kind of life can look like, invite others alongside, learn from them, but also contribute to them, hopefully, a vision and, um, and some evidence that this way of life is still possible mm-hmm. in the 21st century. Wow. So an, a demonstration site of multi-generational community learning to love and live in the love of God and the life of God. It's yeah. so, wow. So you're having a retreat this week. Tell us just a little bit about that. And then I'll get into your other unique contributions to this re- relational revolution that are all synergistic, but what's this week? What is your retreat you're doing? So, you know, lots of people can't break away for a year to come in and do what's now called our Eden Fellows Program um, and uh, <clears throat> do an 18-hour graduate uh, certificate in this regenerative culture. Um, and but, but we know everybody needs it or everybody that wants to should have access to it. So we started last year, had our first Foundations for Regenerative Culture workshop. Um, had some people from around the country and uh, Canada and and uh, are looking forward to the second of those um, five day, four night uh, gatherings where we'll take a deep dive into 10 elements of how to live into your story, your settings and your systems. Wow. So that's happening and that you're, you're thinking that's a, an annual retreat that you will be offering there in Texas um, on the ground so people can see what this community could look like because you're all there, right? But also yeah. learn the elements that make up the structure of that. Like we were talking about the beginning, this the the the, the pipes and the walls <laughs> that people don't really see but that are the very foundation of a community like this, like a strong buildings foundation would be so important to know how to lay one of those. Is that kind of what this does then? It gives you the tools to lay a good foundation for a community. Yes, of course, the the master architect of all all community is is the source of love, God's God's own self. And God's always inviting us into this kind of amazing community with particular people in a particular place at a particular time around specific needs and strengths that that community has. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what we're, what we're not teaching people is a franchisable model. That's not how God works, right? Uh, just stroll across a meadow sometime. Uh, you're not going to see exact duplicates of anything, but God loves unity and diversity. And uh, so so what you're not giving want. people a model so right. much as you're giving them a process to connect with God and each other and follow where God leads them as a community. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. A way of paying attention to what God is up to in the world. We wow. could become radical attention payers like Jesus was. I do nothing of my own initiative. Jesus said, I only do what I see and hear the Father doing. And so that's that's a, a way of life that Jesus has always invited his followers into. Follow me it is not a one-time event. It's a way of life. And uh, if we invite people into that kind of radical attention paying, we'll always be a part of this amazing ecosystem of God's inbreaking kingdom where we are that is absolutely unique to that place, that time, and that people. Wow. That's beautiful. Um, and, you know, Kent, you and I hold a tension. We were talking in the last session about the tensions Luke 10 holds. Um, and, and some of those tensions, just for fun, for people who weren't in that session, viral yet sustainable, disciple-making yet evangelistic, micro yet global, high-tech yet high-touch, spontaneous yet structured, spirit-led yet skill-based, un- united yet diverse, um, pastoral yet missional, <laughs> faith-based yet science-based. And you and I um, have held a unique tension with each other this whole, our, our 10 years together. 
Um, because Matt and I founded an intentional, tried to find, found a, an intentional community training center in Uruguay before we were ripped away from it. Um, and I've been planted back in Nashville now where my extended family is within 45 minutes, all of them within 45 minutes, where there's about 30 of us when we're all together. And so I long for my biological family to live this intentional community mm. that you are doing apart from your your biological family right because like i have mine now like when i was in uruguay i was doing what you were doing because i didn't have my family i'm like yeah. i have my family <laughs> but it's a lot more complicated <laughs> to try to do this with your biological family because they a lot of them don't want to be intentional with you and they don't want to be intentional about any of this stuff so i just laugh because as you're talking i'm still in, i'm still like okay which couples could i get to this to this retreat with you is there anyone in my family that i could like you know kidnap and bring down to texas so we could even think about this from a, a biological family system point of view but maybe it will come <laughs> yeah yes well i think about i think about jesus in his own dilemma around all that right one day he says when he's told hey your mother and brothers are here he says well my mother and brothers are those who are hearing god's word and enacting it and uh so uh, in Jesus' own life, um, at least for a while, there were big chunks of his family that were not all in, right? It took some time. Later on, we know that James was a key part of uh, the early disciple leadership. We know that his mother, obviously, was a key person. But Jesus wasn't limiting his family because he understood that ultimately the family of God is comprised of those who are ready to to uh, receive from God the love that God wants to give. And mm. so. Um, yeah, we work with who we can, and and hopefully that includes our biological family to one degree or another. But yeah, it's uh, that's that is a I think something that all of us live with one degree or another. So complex, so complex. Okay, so can I can we get to the question at hand for me? Sure. And you might have a different answer, so I'll ask you first. If you had to say what your unique contribution to the revolution is. I mean, you, there's many, but but your unique contribution. What would you say it is? Well, um, I mean, I think at the at the biggest level, um, we're going to get to what I think is is uh, <laughs> what you want us to talk about, which is great. <laughs> the biggest level. I think um, it's it's the sort of unrelenting passion I have to remember that the story we're in is one that begins in God's life of joy, ends in deeper joy, and is an invitation for all of us to enter into that amazing life of God that is the invitation to come and share in our delight. Um, I think that meta story, the, the story that, that underpins all stories, uh, is such a theological foundation for everything that's important in history everything that's important in Luke 10. And uh, I, I can't stop talking about that because it's uh, it's pretty foundational. But I think it does point to some of the more specific tools or areas of focus that I've brought to Luke 10. And uh, so we can we can jump into divine governance if you'd like to, because I think that's uh, clearly a, uh, a key area that I have a passion for and that ultimately I think shapes a whole lot of what we do. Definitely. So um, I will say, <clears throat> yes, I, I have, I've encountered your passion around this because apparently you want it in every single book we write. <laughs> uh, John and I are like, can't we said that in the last book? And you're like, yeah, we did. And we're saying it in this one too. <laughs> so um, that has been fun to watch this unrelenting, as you say, <laughs> passion that this begins in joy and in joy and it's an invitation to come and um and it is i love the way you always come back to it even earlier today you've already come back to it once um just to remind us that it I, in fact what did you say you said god's own self is the foundation you know as you're talking about the foundation of community and healthy you're like well it's god's own self like we're being invited into him <laughs> and as we're deeper into him he differentiates each one of us with our unique designs. He connects us together. He tells us how to move in the world. He connects us to the world around us. I mean, it really is a vision that I think um, has to be said over and over and over again, because it's so foreign to 
my training, even as a missionary and as a community constructor myself, um, is so radically different. Um, so I, I really appreciate the unrelenting passion um, <laughs> that the original family existed before the foundations of the earth, and and it's still with us. <laughs> this family to to um, to model and invite into um, the joy of community. Very different uh, theology from a lot of other theologies out there. And it seems like it's that original family for you that probably pushed you out of church governance, out of normal church governance. So mm -hmm. I want to hear the story of how you found sociocracy and divine governance, um, what that looked like for you. And was that the, the impetus that pushed you out of kind of going Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit don't function like any church I've seen. So talk mm -hmm. to me about that. Yeah. Well, as we were planning to launch the Eden Center and the Eden Community, um, I was looking at a lot of the, a lot of my own experience in mission team development and formation, a lot of the challenges that we'd seen on mission, mission context, whether in North America or anywhere else in the world. So many teams that blow up over time um, for one reason or another, but often um, the ability to decide together, to steer together, uh, was was coming up for me as a key issue that we had to address. So I was doing some research around all of that. Um, a friend of mine, I'd ask a guy in 92, I think, just a year or so after I started here, who was kind of a famous um, missionary trainer in our uh, in our tribe, you know, what have you learned in all these years of training teams, sending them all over North America and around the world? And it may have just been a bad day for him. He may have just gotten news from some team breakup. But he said, Kent, the first thing I've learned is that North Americans don't know the first thing about community. And I thought at the time, what a weird response. Here's a guy who spent decades, 40 or 50 years at that point, training missionaries. And his response to what have you learned is, Americans don't know how to do this, don't know how to do this community thing. Um, but as I have trained now over 30 years. In well, and, and I'm going to tell you, I was on mission teams with people from all over the world, and none of yeah. them know how. <laughs> it's yeah. not just Americans. Not just Americans, right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's part of the human condition, right? I mean, people, people don't get along well together, period. Haven't ever. <laughs> Ultimately, there's, you know, without divine involvement, uh, we all... Uh, fall into our worst selves, not our best selves. Um, but I was this was this was feeling existential for me as we were getting ready to form a, a team and a community that's supposed to be a prototype community or an incubator community. How are we going to not do the same stupid things that so many that we've witnessed have done? And so I was doing research and uh, looking at communities of various kinds down through history and some of the contemporary groups. And I got onto um, several places where people were saying, well, we started out doing decision by consensus. And that didn't work very well for very long because there was always somebody who would block a decision. You know, I don't agree. And it didn't matter how much they knew about the topic, how much they cared about the topic. They could just be a broken person who didn't agree with anything for, from anybody and they could shut the whole group down. And so we were losing people and talent and all kinds of things because of that. So we moved to uh, Robert's Rules of Order. Let's let's move to a good Democratic majority rules. And when we did that, we started getting some things done, but we also found ourselves in war camps because everybody's always trying to get in a more majority and the minority is always feeling disenfranchised. And so you don't have to look very far in North American politics to see how that plays out. Over time, everybody's uh, finding the thing that the other people are flawed at, throwing sand in the machine as much as possible while they're in power so you can get in power and, all, and be on the receiving end of the sand from the other group. Mm -hmm. um, and so several groups said, and so what we did after we tried that majority rule dem democratic approaches was we would go to, um, you know, you're a good person, you're a good leader, you seem to be compassionate seem to be smart you you'd make the decisions and we'll go with you you be our leaders so King. some form of autocracy right and uh, that worked great right up until it didn't right <laughs> right up until it turned out that the one person didn't have enough vision 
to address the full needs of the context and the people there. And, uh, and then you have mutinies or you have explosions of communities and all kinds of things like that. Mm-hmm. And then we discovered dynamic governance or sociocracy. Mm-hmm. And we actually started getting things done. We found ourselves working collaboratively as opposed to oppositionally. And this has worked. So I read about three or four comments like that from various sources. Mm. I thought there must be something here. So I did a little research and found out that the key guy in in the English speaking world at that point uh, promoting this is a guy named John Buck. And uh, John had gone to Europe and had discovered sociocracy there in Holland. Uh, a fellow named Gerard Indenberg had uh, had begun this process. And um, so John went, taught himself Dutch and uh, learned uh, learned about sociocracy. As you do, sorry. <laughs> right, of course, why, why wouldn't you do that, right? Came back to America and then began to promote sociocracy in North America. And, and soon there were a whole cadre of folks who were- Do you know what year this, this was roughly? Um, I would get it wrong if I guessed, but <clears throat> when I was chatting with John, he had already, he and Sharon uh, Valines had already produced their, their book on the topic, okay. uh, We the People. Um, okay. And um, so John was already well into the, you know, getting this out in the English speaking world. Um, so I, I contacted him and said, hey, John, gave him a little bit of a sense of what we're up to and said, what's the best way for me to get up to speed as fast as possible on what you guys are doing with this? And he said, well, um, this coming weekend, um, I'm going to be conducting a workshop on sociocracy in West Haven, Connecticut. A couple other key leaders, Jerry uh, Gonzalez, Koch Gonzalez, and uh, um, several others are going to be, Diana Leaf Christian are going to be leading. Um, If you'll fly to D.C., I'll ride the train up with you to West Haven. We can talk about your questions on the way up. You can do the workshop and then we can debrief on the way back. So I thought, well, I've spent more than that on a single graduate course. That's worth that's <laughs> worth the investment. So um, so I flew out and oh had a wonderful four or five days with uh, John and a number of the, the key leaders in socio- sociocratic training at that point. What and year? When was that? This is 20... I want to say 2013, maybe 2012. Okay. I just want people to get a sense of the the relative, like that's recent. I mean, yeah. it's not like it was ago. in the 80s. I mean, this right. was very recent that all of this even hit the United States, it seems like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, like it literally just hadn't been around, you know, very long for people yeah. to experiment and discover it. Okay. Yeah. Now, so, when you went to talk with him, I have to ask, mm-hmm. had he had too many Christians asking him about the adaptation of this for church governance? Uh, not many. Yeah, I was among the first um, coming from a more faith-based orientation. John um, and Gerard Indenberg before him were both uh, uh, Quaker by background. And of course, the Quakers have a rich tradition of deep attention paying to the spirit among us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I said, Jen, uh, Indenberg, that's not quite right. Um, Indenberg attended a Quaker school that was launched by Case Buka, uh, a Dutch um, a Dutch Quaker leader who imp- has impacted lots and lots of important things over the years. He married a mm. The, one of the daughters of the Hershey Empire, and uh, uh, so he had some financial means to work with. But he has been—he was a a key person. They started a, a Quaker school in Holland that became one of the most renowned schools in Europe. Lots of royalty from various uh, European nations went to school there. Gerard Indenberg attended there as a young man. And so this is a Quaker school, and they're creating this radically attention-paying culture among the students and the teachers. Mm. And Indenberg said, I wonder if that could be applied in other, other contexts. And because of his family situation, he ultimately began to, uh, with, with a graduate degree in cybernetics, which is basically how you govern, um, 
he he began to use those principles in the business context and that's when things really began to take off in europe wow so he's the guy that john buck learned from directly wow so they're in the States trying to introduce this to the United States. They write, we the people, which I just have to put a little plug in for our leader team lesson for this coming month in June, because for all of those in communities of practice with Luke 10, we do leader team lessons each month. This month is John White's uh, cliff notes. <laughs> so the John White notes on we the people. And we talk all about divine governance in this leader lesson for our leader teams, our communities of practice. So uh, in, in, enjoy that whole lesson. And this is a great intro to that, uh, the history mm -hmm. of that. So, so there you are having a conversation with him about governance. You're thinking of application in the, in the kingdom of God and in Christ's communities and what happens next. Well, John and I really enjoyed our, our this is John Buck now, uh, our, our friendship. And uh, so we collaborated about a year later to teach the first graduate course in English on uh, sociocracy and di dynamic governance in uh, North America uh, here at Abilene Christian University in the Graduate School of Theology where I teach. So John and I co-taught that course um, and lots of people uh, were profoundly encouraged by that it was uh, could see all kinds of applications for not only faith-based organizations and nonprofits but for churches themselves you know why wouldn't we want to learn how to pay deep attention to all of the people in an organism or in an organization uh, who have something to contribute to it and that sounds that sounds kind of gospel doesn't it uh, to, to assume that um, each person brings their own gift their own, Mm -hmm. wisdom their own perception of reality that's unique to them and however uh however you do things if that voice is just silenced or left to the side how much poorer the organism is than if it were open to receiving from that that uh, rich collection of people that make it up so what year was that again that course Probably, I'm going to say 2013 or 14, somewhere in there. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's not even 10 years ago, is it? No, it's yeah. not even 10 years just, ago. Just about a so decade fresh. ago. Yeah. This is yeah. so fresh. Um, so just to put this into practical, because I know we're not going to go into sociocracy and all of the ins and outs of it on this call. But if sure. you had to say in Luke 10, the things that have been... the the sociocratic um, ideas that have kind of penetrated our practices. Um, name some of those for people who are just practicing Luke 10, but have no idea what the construction is behind it. Yeah. Well, so um, decision-making in groups, um, decision-making in general um, has some interesting roots in uh, a course across human history. In all times, in all places, people have had to organize themselves around ways of making decisions. Some of the ones that I listed, uh, consensus, democracy of various forms, autocracy, um, all of those have always been around in one form or another. But um, to, to deliberately pay attention to how can we steer together mm -hmm. is something that is uniquely godlike and it's uniquely... Uh, part, I think, of our heritage and our calling as the people of God, as Christians, uh, those who follow God. So, um, you know, when uh, when you get into the the weeds of how do you do that, um, there's some very, very simple principles. Governance, um, the word um, governance and the word cybernetics both have their root in the Greek word kubernates, which means rudder. It's it's mm -hmm the way by which a, a ship or a boat sails, right? Steers. Um, mm -hmm. So it's all about steerage. And um, steerage is um, uh, a simple process of planning, enacting the plan, and then measuring uh, how you're doing on your plan, right? And then adapting by planning again, mm -hmm. and then... Uh, enacting uh, the new plan and measuring again, right? It's that iterative process. That's how we steer bicycles. That's how we steer airplanes from point A to point B. That's how all 
decision, all governance, all steering happens is planning, enacting, and measuring. And so, um, but but for Americans in particular, but people in general, it becomes problematic when there's more than one voice involved, right? And so how can we do that kind of steerage where we include, yes, the voices of other people, but even more importantly, the voice of God. Hmm. Jesus, Jesus makes it clear that his expectation is that he will lead us. He will guide us by his spirit um, if we're willing to be led, right? If, if we're not quenching the spirit, if we're not uh, hardening our hearts against the spirit, if we're not ignoring the spirit, then we will be led by God. And that's the invitation of Jesus from the outset is I, I'm Lord and I am inviting you to follow me. Um, and so, um, as John says in the little article, this, the, the move from uh, dynamic governance or sociocracy to divine governance is really simply to include at the center of it, the voice of God. And Which, uh, I just yeah. have to say, I was on you know, many mission teams before finding you guys. And um, I remember being young and telling Matt, like young, like in my 20s and telling Matt, I wish I could work on a on a team, uh, a pastoral team or a mission team with people that knew how to hear God's voice together. Like I would tell him that in my 20s, because every team I was a part of had a visionary, had somebody kind of, you know, inspiring and leading the way we all prayed individually. We all prayed using words together. But mm-hmm. none of us knew how to hear God's voice together or discern him together or listen. Mm-hmm. And and if we heard different things independently from God while we were listening and came together, we didn't even know how to resolve that. It was like, how do you, I'm hearing this, you're hearing this. What do we do? Well, we just leave, right? We just divide or, or something because there was no way to listen to each other's hearts and God's heart together and and steer together so when when i found you and john i was like this is a whole this is the bird i've been looking for my whole life this is it how are y'all doing this so it really is incredible and all of our staff will tell you that ever just anyone on staff will say this is the most unique experience i've ever had and they're ruined for life <laughs> no we'll never if we run drive money and we all have to go work for someone else it's not going to happen because we're going to be ruined <laughs> we won't be able to work in a different governing system but can you tell us just a little bit about how that works how how do we listen to god together and each other's heart and make decisions together yeah well so let me comment on something else you said first, and then I'll come back to that. So I, I think there, there are at least two major reasons why we don't live this way. One is that we don't think that God works that way. Hmm. You know, so especially folks who are from more conservative Christian uh, traditions, but I think largely across the board, hmm. we, we have consigned uh, God to the edges of history and uh, of reality. We, we, don't expect to hear from God. We mm. we think prayer is a one-way street. We tell God what we need. We hope God get, will get around to answering us. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but we're functional deists, as we say in our little book. You know, we're we're acting as though God is not here. And the, you know, this is a master plot, I think, by the enemy to draw all of Western culture and, and certainly Christian culture away from the conviction that Jesus is here. Emmanuel, God is with us, and God is always with us in all contexts. He's right in the middle of this conversation right now, and the people who are listening to it, he's right here, right now. We don't have to guess what would Jesus do. Hmm. That very question, that way of thinking is the most profound evidence that we are functioning as deists. We don't have to ask what would Jesus do. The question is, Lord, what are you up to? And what would you like for us, me, to know about that right now? That's how we began this call, right? That's because we assume from the from the get-go, Jesus is here. The Spirit's available to lead us. God is passionately involved in human history. He mm-hmm. tenderly loves his whole creation. And we can get in on that if we are willing to listen. It's not by accident that Jesus says more than anything else, if you've got ears to hear, Pay attention. Mm, mm, mm. You have eyes to see. Notice. That's that's the great need. It's mm. not that God's not active. It's that we aren't paying attention. Wow. 
So that's the first one is God doesn't, people think God doesn't work that way. Yeah. And the second flows out of it, which is we don't normally practice paying attention to God. We haven't seen it done. Like you were yeah. saying, as a missionary, I, it was certainly true for me. You know, I went through seminary. I don't think I ever had a class where the professor stopped and said, we've covered a lot of really important <laughs> material here. Let's pause now and see what the Lord wants to impress on our hearts about what this means for us today, here and now. That just didn't happen. Again, functional deist. I, I raise my hand. I am a recovering functional deist. And I still struggle all the time with the habits formed over a lifetime of assuming God is not here. And I've got to figure it out. My, I've got to make the best judgments I can based on the best information I can yeah. find to draw a conclusion about what to do in every situation because God's not here. Mm -mm -mm. You know, that's, that's, that's my challenge. I think it's the challenge of most of the people I've known and worked with over a lifetime in Christian service. And so to rediscover a way of life that places the present active engagement of Emmanuel, God who is with us in the middle of our practice is it's a tall order. I'm still very much, I feel like I'm on training wheels, learning to not be a functional deist in the way I live. So this is where I, I kind of get the, the practical pieces of sociocracy that actually help create these environments. Um, yeah. Because the practices, right? Like we check in, um, mm -hmm. which even in, in secular sociocracy, they check in, right? Sure. Might not look the same, right. might not be as heart to heart connected as ours. I'll, I'll admit I've been on some of their calls, <laughs> but, um, but we, we, we have rounds and that's huge. And people experienced that in the last call, if they watched how every single 20 people on a call had a voice, you know, yeah. so we structure it in these rounds. So there is some structure, right? But it doesn't mean there's not spontaneity, <laughs> It doesn't mean it's squelched, but there is enough structure to assure that we connect heart to heart with each other and that we listen to God yeah. together yeah. and that we practice that listening. Um, and, and it's just incredible. Those two rhythms alone that we do all the way from a church of two, all the and, and the same two rhythms too. That's the amazing thing for me is whether we have two people or whether we have 500 people leading a community the rhythms are the same. The, the way you structure to some degree is very similar. You don't have to learn a whole new set of governing tools, right. <laughs> which is so new to me as well, because in, in my life where pastoral care and mission were completely separate, there was a whole separate set of tools for everything. And none of them were really applied in your family. It, you know, how yeah. did you lead that well? So yeah. I have discovered that what you're bringing is, is that radical too, because it's that simple. Yeah. What else would you like to say about that? Any of that? Well, so I think the the circle structure, which is foundational to sociocracy, and I think to the divine life, um, where every part is seeing one another, every part has an equal has a has a legitimate voice to to offer. Mm. Um, wow, that's true. that's that's foundational because we're saying we don't only hear from God. Um, as our individual attention paying grows to God, we're also learning to hear from God by discerning the body of Christ that is here in the room with us. And so we are learning from God as we listen to one another deeply. Mm -hmm. So again, the idea of, of being in a circle and the idea of polling that circle for what's going on for each person is so critically important if we want to hear from God. The earliest Christians, you know, I, I love the passage in Colossians that I think takes this to the to the highest level and says um, to a little group, probably definitely meeting in a home somewhere or in, in some some hidden place, you know, um, uh, Paul, I, I assume Paul wrote Colossians and he says, in Christ, the fullness of deity is presently living in bodily form. Mm -hmm. So, okay, wait a minute. Jesus has already died. He's already been resurrected. We're decades after the resurrection here. Paul's talking to this little band of folks meeting in a living room somewhere, and he's saying, in Christ, 
the fullness of God is presently living in bodily form. And you, Colossians, together among yourselves, have the fullness of Christ. Mm. See, that's a vision that God is alive in this community. And if we took that seriously, yeah. if we realize when I look into your eyes, I'm looking into the eyes of Jesus. Radical. You know, it, it revolutionizes what it means to be uh, attentive to God in some profound ways. And it changes the way we try to form decisions. You know, we, we know how to poll everyone to kind of think about, well, what, what's important about this decision? And what could we do? And what will we do? And Lord, what do you want us to do in light of the things that we've been raising and hearing from each other? It's so like every it. voice begins to matter because the only way I can see the image of God is to hear their voice. Exactly. That is so radically different than, than the way most of us were raised in church, especially. Yeah. So radically different. Um, the whole but, idea that God just downloads all of God's truth into one smart or visionary or super spiritual person. Or through his word only in right. my quiet time by myself. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you can't get the multifaceted wisdom of God by yourself with a, a written book. Yep. You have to get it through living community with people who represent God's unique designs, right? Or his design, his unique design in different ways. Preach it, we sister. can go on and on uh, on this topic. Um, thank you so much for uh, being with us today and um and for the contribution you've made, for just pressing in, for your research, for your hard research that led to something that I believe is the hope of the church today. It's the hope of Christian community and culture. If we're ever going to survive or become the bride of Christ, mm -hmm. uh, this is the missing piece. Um, and it's so hard to see because it's like the foundation of something or like the plumbing in the walls, but, but crucial crucial if we're going to, if we're going to function well. Um, so thank you for following God's heart in you and your unique design and digging in and doing hard work um, to do this um, cultural shift. So I appreciate you so much. And thank you for that. Thank you, Tony. You know, just one last thought here. God's always been, uh, as we mentioned in the book, um, Relational Revolution, God has always been drawing the bride back to this amazing vision. Um, and it's not new, it's just forgotten. And it gets forgotten periodically throughout church history for thousands of years now. Um, but, but it is exciting to be in this moment in time where God is rem reminding us, is drawing us back to this amazing possibility that we could live uh, spirit-led, Jesus-empowered, joy-fueled lives in our time. And uh, I'm just delighted to get to be a part of it, to have a, a bit part in a grand pageant that's an unfolding here. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else uh, any with anyone else in time than right now. Thank you, Dr. Kent Smith. My joy. It. Take care. Bye for now. Bye.
Hello, hello. Hello, hello. I am handing you. Oh, no. I can't hear you. Uh-oh. Anywhere. That's not good. Try again. Hello, hello. Good. Okay. Great. I've been having a million screens. Awesome. Well, I'm about to invite Bethany in for our conversations. Tony, if you can, um, you can even make me the host. I did. I'll end it and start again for us. Sounds good. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Joyfield and Jesus Led. The relational revolution is underway and divine governance is the cybernetics or the steering rudder that reflects the life and love of God here on earth. If you're interested in learning more, I have some book titles and links in the show notes. And of course, if you'd like to become a community of practice, learning and implementing these skills, join Luke 10 at LK10.com today and sign up for an intro call. Until next time.